My belief in God feels like a ball balancing on a triangle, trying to hold up the questions of life. Hi, everyone. Uh, to those of you who joined us last week on Easter, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, we really do love you, and more importantly, God loves you. And uh, we're in this series called I Believe in God But, where we're exploring some of the most common doubts and questions uh, that people have about Christianity. And so last week we talked about science versus the supernatural, and today we're going to discuss the Bible. Now, it's easy to misread or misinterpret the Bible. And I just want to give you some biblical bloopers, some slightly skewed biblical insights from children in Sunday school classes. All right, here's one. Noah's wife was named Joan of Arc. A close but not quite young man. How about this one? Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. Sounds like a, an exciting gal. Uh, the seventh commandment, here's another one, is thou shalt not admit adultery. So those are words to live by, definitely not in the Bible. Uh, here's another one. Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. And he may have had an easier time with the porcupines, to be honest. If you don't get that one, there's an old word, concubine, that means, you know, well, look it up. How about this one? When Mary heard that she was the mother of Jesus, she sang the Magna Carta. <laughs> a plus for historical reference, it was actually called the Magnificat. And finally, the Bible says that a man is only supposed to have one wife. This is called monotony. <laughs> this would be the very wrong time to shout out amen, husbands. Uh, and so, yes, the Bible can be hard to understand, you know, by kids and adults alike. And I'm sure we've all had different experiences with the Bible during our lives. In fact, if I were to ask you this morning, you know, what do you think about the Bible? What kind of weight does this book have in your life? Some of you would say, you know, it's just full of ancient myths and legends. And some would say, you know, it's a good idea book that, that you can extract some workable strategies for your life. Some of you say it, it's been used to oppress people. And some would say that it's God's infallible word for human beings to live by. I suppose we'd be all over the continuum, continuum on that one. But part of the inspiration for this series is that 87% of Americans say that they believe in God. But as we've said, the, the, the devil's in the details. So, so just look at this discrepancy with how those same 87% of Americans view the Bible. So those who believe that the Bible is actually the word of God to be taken literally, that's 24%. 47% say that the Bible is the inspired word of God and not everything should be taken literally. 26% say that the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, and moral precepts. So, so yeah, there's a lot of ideas. In fact, a lot of skepticism around the Bible. And admittedly, the Bible has been used for many good things and, and then misused and even weaponized for many terrible things through history. It's been taken out of context to justify wars and slavery and the mistreatment of different groups of people. It's been politicized. I mean, who can forget even our two most recent presidents, President Trump, who quoted his favorite passage, remember this, from 2 Corinthians. And, and then he held up someone else's Bible upside down for a photo op in front of a historic church in D.C. as protesters were forcibly removed from the streets. Or how about President Biden? Last Thanksgiving, he repeatedly quoted the, the palmist. And then he later used the story of Isaiah's spiritual calling, and he applied it to U.S. military troops who were being sent to war by our government, and he claimed that the soldiers were saying, here am I, Lord, send me. 
Now, these two are certainly not the only politicians to misuse the Bible, just the two most recent. And some people say, well, you know, the Bible was used to to justify covering up clergy abuse scandals and to harbor hatred against the LGBTQ community and and to repress women. And so, yeah, the the Bible has been misused often. I, I have an undergrad degree in biblical literature. I have a master's degree in theology. And I'm here to tell you that the Bible is tough. Like, you're not alone if you have questions and doubts about the Bible. And it warrants us spending some time today to try to get to the bottom of what's going on with the Bible. And and so before you say, you know, let's just get rid of this book, or at least just not take it seriously, or specifically the view that I want to address today, that, that this ancient book is filled with fairy tales. It's filled with old ideas, and it's more like Aesop's fables than something we should take seriously. I want to give it its due consideration, because the Bible isn't just a book for Christians. It's a book about being human. It's a collection of stories and poems and songs and letters and narratives that detail how people have struggled to understand and to relate to God through history. It's a story of God working in the world and how to be the kind of human who can partner with God in that work. The Bible's full of you know, people who struggle and fail and question and triumph, just like you and me and the people that we know. You see, the, the, the struggle of the human experience is something that we all share in common. And it's through our struggle that we find common ground in the Bible. His purpose isn't just to determine who's in and who's out of the Christian club. It's God's revelation to us about divinity and humanity. The Bible deals with things like loss and anger and transcendence and worry and power and money and fear and stress and joy and doubts and grace and healing. The Bible is filled with stories of people who don't have it all figured out and God is gracious with them and patient with them and ultimately in the end he makes a way for them to be in relationship with him. It's quite a book. It's actually not even just a book. It's more like a library or collection of different books. Think of Netflix categories or or genres, right? So just like Netflix has action and comedies and drama and children and family and documentaries and romance and international, whatever, the, the Bible also has a bunch of genres too. So some of the Bible is written as law and there's some history, narrative, there's some poetry, some of it's called wisdom literature, there's prophecy in the gospels, and there's letters. And so just like you wouldn't go to the, the horror section of Netflix to get your five-year-old settled in for bed at night, you also wouldn't go to the poetry sections of the Bible with your science questions, or you wouldn't apply everything that was written in a personal letter to all people everywhere for all of time, and yet people do those things, and that's why some get so frustrated with the Bible. So let me just give you a quick crash course on the Bible before we try to make some deeper sense of it. So so there are 66 books of the Bible written over a span of 1,600 years. 40 different authors wrote from every walk of life. They wrote from three different continents and 16 different countries and three different languages. And with that being the case, the Bible still speaks with surprising unity. It's a combination of God's voice through human authors. It's a, the, the single most published book in the history of the world. Billions have been printed and purchased over the years. It's the best-selling book in history. Also, it has stood the test of time. No other book has been scrutinized or ridiculed or criticized or misinterpreted or banned or burned like the Bible. And kings and emperors and dictators and governments have all tried to wipe the Bible out of existence. But here it stands, continuing to change lives. And speaking of that, no other book has had the the transformational effect on people that the Bible has. You know, people read books all the time. 
Most of you, when you, you finish a book, you put it away and you look for another book. But with the Bible, like you read it and you never seem to quite finish it. It changes lives, it alters our view of the world, it changes our relating patterns, it changes our values, it changes our ethics, our vocabulary, and our view of eternity. The Bible is a remarkable book. You know, in the rabbinic tradition, they talk about the Bible having 70 faces, and so when you read it, you you keep turning it like a a diamond. You're letting the light refract through the various faces in new and unexpected ways. You read it, and then you let it read you. You dive into God's story and you discover your story and you begin to ask questions and you study and you analyze and you smile and you laugh and you argue and you speculate and discuss and get frustrated and let it get under your skin. Again, you let it read you and then you turn the gem one more time. And today I don't wanna set out to convince you that the Bible's perfect or inerrant or even divinely inspired. If you're skeptical of the Bible, that conversation should be much longer than my short time here and it should be much more personal. Because blanket claims and statements don't work when it comes to to these subjects. But what I do want to convince you of may be more manageable. And it's my big idea today that despite what you have heard in the media or from your college philosophy professor or your, your atheistic uncle, I want to convince you that the Bible can be trusted. I'll talk about three specific ways that I think it can be trusted. And I owe some of the content of today's message to the great work on this subject by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. I'd highly recommend reading it. But as I said, the main issue I want to address today is the idea that the Bible is just a bunch of ancient myths. So so people will say, you know, just like the Greeks had Zeus and Poseidon and the Romans had Apollo and Neptune and Hercules, Christians believe the God of the Bible and Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And a lot of people just put this into the the arena of myths and fairy tales. They'll, They'll say, well, maybe it has some moral insights and maybe some wise phrases, but let's not get carried away. I want you to know three ways today that the Bible can be trusted. The first is this. You can trust the Bible historically. I'd love for you to turn in your Bible to to Luke chapter 1 with me today or your device. And we can't deal with the whole Bible this morning, but for our purposes, we're going to focus on the Gospels. And so let me just be clear. The whole Bible does pass the historical and archaeological tests that have been applied to it again and again and again. But we're going to focus on the Gospels. So the prevailing idea among skeptics these days is that these gospel accounts were written much later than than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were written later by church leaders who embellished or maybe completely made up some of the stories in order to get their new church movement off the ground. They did it as kind of a power grab. But I want you to look at how Luke starts his gospel. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke tells us specifically here how he went about composing his gospel. He was a doctor, by the way. But but he writes, this this wasn't written as a myth. It was written as historical record. I want you to know first that the gospels were written too early to be myths. They were written in the same generation as when the events happened. 
And so the authors couldn't have completely made up fairy tales and then claimed them to be true. That would like be me, you know, coming out with a book where I said, hey, everybody, remember that time 20 years ago on September 11th, 2001, when that big spaceship came down with laser beams and, and shot holes in the World Trade Center, and then they both fell down in the streets of New York City? No publisher would publish that book as truth. The National Enquirer might give me some walking around money for that one, but that's about it. Why? Because there are still enough eyewitnesses all over the place who could tell the truth about what happened. They could laugh my version out of existence. But the Gospels weren't laughed out of existence. In fact, they gained circulation within the lifetime of many of the people who were there as eyewitnesses. Luke says here, he said that I carefully investigated, and then he says that he checked with eyewitnesses. He's basically saying, listen, lots of people who knew Jesus are still alive. So check with them if you'd like. Check with them against what I've written here. Mark said in his gospel that, that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross, he said, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why is this detail important? Well, he's inviting contemporary corroboration. He's giving names that people can talk to. If you want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, you know, go talk to Rufus. Paul wrote, for example, 10 to 15 years after Jesus' life, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Listen, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Again, Paul is saying here, listen, Jesus appeared to 500 people at once and they're still alive. So feel free to go talk to them and ask them about what they saw. And so these accounts were written too early to be myths, but also the gospels are too counterproductive in their details to be myths. Let me explain. I told you that skeptics suggest that the Gospels were written by leaders in the early church to promote their agenda, to build their movement. But here's the deal. If those church leaders hundreds of years later were getting together to concoct a story that would really gain steam, they would have come up with a better story than the one we have in the New Testament. Like in the Gospels, we read details like, you know, Jesus was begging God to, to get out of his mission in the Garden of Gethsemane. Or Jesus was on the cross saying that God had forsaken him. He's questioning. How about Jesus actually dying on a criminal's cross? Like having your leader killed in the most humiliating way possible is hardly the way to get a movement going. But it is a good way to deem that your leader is untrustworthy, a criminal. How about this? Why would they invent women as the first witnesses of the resurrection in a society where women were assigned such a low status that their testimony wasn't even admissible as evidence in court? Like, that's a bad idea. And the apostles, take the apostles. They certainly don't look like heroes in the Gospels. Why would anyone in the early church want to follow Peter that denied Jesus or Thomas that doubted Jesus or the brother of Jesus, James, who questioned that, that, that Jesus was even the Son of God? However, listen, the inclusion of these kind of counterproductive details, they actually add to the historical credibility of the Gospel accounts. It doesn't read like myth or fairy tale where all the characters are cleaned up as heroes. It reads as real, dirty, gritty, true historical account. 
And now listen, not to get too nerdy on you right now, give me two minutes here. There's another way that we can know that the Gospels are historically accurate. There's an accepted secular test to determine the reliability of ancient documents. And the New Testament beats all the other documents by a landslide. So, so this test determines historical reliability by how many manuscript copies exist of an ancient text and then how close those copies are to when the original authors wrote the original versions. For example, the Greek philosopher Plato lived and wrote around the time of 400 BC. The earliest copies, copies that we have of his writings were found somewhere around 940 AD. That's like 1300 years after he wrote them. Those are the earliest copies we found. And there are like seven copies of his writings from that period. This is considered very historically reliable. Or there's no question about the historical reliability of Caesar's, uh, the Gallic Wars. He wrote them in around 50 BC, and the first copies that were found were dated around 900 AD, and so only about a thousand years between the first copy and the original writing. And there are 10 copies in existence. Historians can trust that, that what they found in those copies is identical to the original. They're historically accurate. Do you know what the numbers are for the New Testament? The original authors wrote between 50 and 80 AD. The first copies are from around 100 to 200 AD. So not 1,500 years separating, not 1,000 years separating the copies, but 50 years or 150 years. And in terms of the original copies, there aren't seven like Plato. There aren't 10 like Caesar's Gallic Wars. There are over 5,000 copies and remnants of those copies. So in terms of just secular measures of the historical reliability of ancient documents, the New Testament crushes all competitors. So you can trust the Bible historically, but there's a second way. You can trust the Bible culturally. You know, there's a saying that I heard growing up in church. People would say, the Bible says it and I believe it and that settles it. Some of you may have said that. And while I appreciate the sentiment, there is one missing step in there that's very, very important, and it's the step of proper interpretation. I said at the beginning that the Bible has been used and misused for many evil things throughout history, and that happens when the Bible is wrongly interpreted. We must understand that there is a wide cultural gap between us, the reader, and the original authors and their audience. And so reading the Bible is like a cross-cultural experience. When you open the Bible up, you're stepping into a strange world that is nothing like your own. You don't speak the languages. You don't know the geography. You don't know the cultural customs and references. You don't know what behaviors are considered rude and which are considered polite. The meaning of the words is completely foreign. Like, just consider the challenges in our own time across cultures. My son just got back from a business trip in Australia. He was assigned a colleague there who was from Australia that would help him to navigate his time there. Now, these two were the same age. They were both in their early 20s. They both spoke English, the same language. They were obviously from the same era in history, 2022. They were living in the same global community. And they were driving down the road in Australia one day, and this friend said to my son, and I quote, I'm not going to do the accent. He said, hey, mate. Okay, I just did the accent. Look at that tradie smoking a durry, pulling out of the servo car park in his Falcon Ute. All right, these guys are the same age. They speak the same language, they're from the same era, and in one sentence, there were so many culturally bound references and nuances that my son had no idea what that dude said. 
So I'll tell you what he said. A tradie is a blue collar worker, anyone working in the trades. A dury is a cigarette. A servo is a gas station. A car park is a parking lot. And a Falcon Ute is the name brand of a Ford vehicle that resembles an El Camino. Right? It's popular among tradies because they can fit supplies in the back. And so a tradie smoking a dury pulling out of a servo car park in his Falcon Ute is the equivalent of a plumber smoking a cigarette leaving the parking lot of a gas station in his El Camino. And you can see here the problem with communicating across cultures. And these guys are speaking the same language. My point is that when we read the Bible, we have to come to the text with a great deal of humility. For example, we come from a highly individualistic and independent culture in the United States. The ancient Mediterranean culture was much more collectivistic. People thought of themselves primarily not as individuals, but as part of a group or a family. And so just looking at key practices like baptism or communion, in our time, these are things that you participate in individually, steps that you decide to take yourself. But when, for example, the Philippian jailer was baptized, it says that his entire household was baptized as well. That included not just his immediate family, but extended family, even close friends and employees or servants. Why? Because if he was doing it, that meant we were all doing it. They saw themselves as one unit. Or when you look at Paul's critique of the way that the Corinthian church was taking the Lord's Supper, it's scathing because they weren't waiting for each other before indulging in the meal themselves. It was a collectivistic culture. Everything was we and not I. The individual versus collectivistic lens is just one of a thousand things like that that stand in our way of properly interpreting the text of the Bible. And I don't want to, to, to discourage your ability to read and understand, but please approach the Bible not as a know-it-all, but with great humility and a learning posture and, and to really try to discover and discern what the Bible meant to its original hearers and then ask how that wisdom or those principles apply to us in our time, but you have to first understand what it meant to them. You see, when you read the Bible, one of the things that you have to do is consider that it might not teach what you think it teaches. That's what humility looks like when approaching the text. So when you come across something that offends you, be patient with it, go slow. Don't just toss the Bible out the door. Seek to understand instead of just dismissing it as kind of a backwards thinking oppressive document. For example, when you read Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, you'll see spiritual heroes that you've heard about, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you'll read uh, you know, that about how they, they treated women or that they had multiple wives, and you'll say, I can't believe the Bible condones the mistreatment of women. They're buying and selling their wives. This is an oppressive patriarchy, and there are these so-called heroes of the Old Testament. How could they treat women this way? Well, we have to understand that sometimes the Bible's describing things that it's not necessarily promoting. Robert Alter in his book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, points out that there are two institutions that were universal in the ancient Near Eastern cultures. One is polygamy, the idea that men had multiple wives. Every culture did that. And the second is primogeniture, which is the idea that the oldest son gets everything in terms of rights and responsibilities and inheritance. This was universal. So in that world, you always wanted to be the oldest son in the family because you got everything. But when you actually read Genesis, in every generation, polygamy wreaks havoc, socially, morally, familially, culturally. In every way, polygamy is a disaster. God is against polygamy. 
And in every generation, God always favors the younger son. And so it's Abel and not Cain. It's Isaac and not Ishmael. It's Jacob and not Esau. And at first glance, you may read that Genesis is supporting these institutions when it's just the opposite. Genesis is actually subverting these ancient patriarchal practices at every turn. And so imagine if you just read that and you just got rid of the Bible before you understood this truth. It might not be teaching what you think it's teaching. The second thing to consider is to consider that you might have cultural blinders on. Take, for example, this idea that the Bible condones slavery. The argument goes something like this. The Bible condones slavery, and slavery is wrong, and so the Bible must be wrong on all kinds of other stuff, too. The question is, does the Bible actually condone slavery? Like, we read passages where Paul says, slaves, obey your masters, and people are like, see, there it is. But, but just go to the one book where Paul actually talks about the master-servant relationship, Philemon. And you'll see very quickly that it's totally different than how we think about slavery. Like when we hear slave, our cultural experience has led us to picture 18th and 19th century slavery in America, the horrific atrocities that were done by our ancestors to our ancestors. But Murray Harris points out that in the New Testament world, what is translated as slavery is quite different than the slavery that we know. Slaves weren't segregated. It wasn't race-based. Often slaves were more educated than, than their owners. Very few slaves were slaves for life. Most of them made the same wages as free workers. And so it was the accepted societal way of paying off a debt that was owed either personally or because of a crime. I would just come to work for you as your servant or slave. Now, I'm not justifying the system. The system was still oppressive. It still had winners and losers. It still had haves and have-nots. But when someone takes a swipe at the Bible and says, oh, that book is so backwards, it, it even condones slavery, the short answer is, no, it doesn't. Our culture of blinders take that word slavery with all of our cultural baggage that comes with it, and then we apply it and hold it against this ancient Middle Eastern culture who treated it very differently. And you may say, well, didn't people in the South use the Bible to condone slavery in the United States? Yes, they did. But they were twisting the text. That's not what it says. And so it's interesting to note that even in our modern times, from culture to culture, different parts of the Bible offend different cultures. For example, today in the individualistic United States, most Western societies, that what the Bible says about sex, for example, is a problem. It seems backwards and it seems regressive. But what it says about forgiveness, for example, is great. It's enlightened, it's forward thinking. But go to the Middle East and that thing will be turned on its head. What the Bible says about sex is pretty good, probably not nearly strict enough. But what it says about forgiveness is repulsive. You see, in an honor and shame culture, the need to personally avenge wrongs is just a given. And so different aspects of the Bible offend different cultures. And this has happened for most of history. And, and, and we should know by now that when this happens, Maybe the first thing to do isn't to throw out the Bible. Maybe the first thing to do is to reconsider where this cultural tide is taking us. So you can trust the Bible historically. You can trust it culturally. And the third way is this. You can trust the Bible personally. You know, many people think that when someone submits their heart to the wisdom and the authority of the Bible, it leads to a cold legalistic faith. Now listen, it can do that because we're all human. But more likely, what I've seen more often is that a belief in the authority of the Bible is the starting place of a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus. There's a story in Luke 24 of two disciples on the road to Emmaus following the death of Jesus in Jerusalem. They were upset, they were disheartened because they thought Jesus was the Messiah. They thought that, that the Old Testament promised 
that, that, that he was the Messiah. And clearly, in their minds, he wasn't or because he had just died a criminal's death. Now, they actually had a cultural misunderstanding like we just talked about. They thought that the Messiah was going to be a conquering warrior. They thought the Bible taught something that it didn't. But, but then to their surprise, Jesus showed up walking along the road with them to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him, but he began to explain the scriptures to them. And they say it this way in Luke 24, 32. They say, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but their hearts were on fire. Why? Because they were consumed suddenly by Jesus. How? Because the Bible was properly explained to them. It has that kind of power. You see, the key path to a deep personal relationship with Jesus is through an understanding of the truth of the scriptures. That the key is found here in Luke 24, 27. It says, and, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus, this is he, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How cool would this be to have Jesus leading your Bible study? And here's what he's saying. He's saying that everything in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all pointing to him. Imagine Jesus explaining, for example, the story of Moses. And he's saying, listen, guys, this story of Moses is not mainly a story about great leadership. It's not mainly a story about how to walk through your Red Sea of difficulties. It's not a story about how to survive your, you know, wandering in your personal desert. Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's pointing to me. I'm the better Moses. Here's what the story tells us, that you need to be rescued from your slavery. And guess what? You have a savior. Jesus is saying, all of that story was just part of my story. It was pointing to me. And so the Bible is all about Jesus. And when you engage it deeply, it leads you toward a relationship with him. On the other hand, if you think that the Bible's all about you, just some moral code that you need to live by, then you don't need a savior to die for you. All you need is the rules. But I promise you, if you read the Bible as your own personal rule book and you try to follow every letter of it, you will die in frustration because it's not all about you, it's about him. Your heart won't be satisfied until you see him and find him. And so my strongest recommendation is that you come to embrace the central teachings of the scripture, that there is a God, that he loves you, that his son Jesus Christ went to the cross for your behalf so that your sins could be forgiven, and that if you surrender to him, Jesus will transform you from the inside out and set you on a course as his apprentice to walk through the beautiful but narrow road of this life. You know, when I was a kid, my dad was a, a marathon runner. He was also a fairly new Christian, but he developed quickly a deep love for the scriptures with the help of a friend and mentor of his. One Saturday morning, it was a, a fall day, warm, but with that crisp feel in the air. My dad had gotten home from a long run. He showered and changed, and he brought his Bible down to the back porch, and we went outside on this little patio, and we sat at our picnic table, and my dad opened the word of God to me. And to this day, to this day, I can still point to that moment as the day that I fell in love with God's word. My heart was stirred by the Holy Spirit. The words seemed to come to life to me. Like, like those disciples on the road, my heart burned within me. And since that day, I, I've done the, the, the very best that I know how to, to submit my whole life to the story of Jesus that unfolds in this book. And, and yeah, it's a tough book. I still interrogate it and I poke it and I probe it. Then it pokes me back. And then I turn the diamond once more and see another thing that I've never seen before. 
But I challenge you with this truth, that when you invest time to read and dwell on the Bible, it will become a transformational force in your life. So, just two practical next steps as I close. One daily and one weekly. Daily, would you find your chair and read a little portion of the Bible every day this week? Like, we have so many great resources to help you. You can access them over at whoisgrace.com read. You don't even have to figure out where to start reading. We'll help you with that as well. And then weekly, would you receive teaching from the Bible every week through this series? Would you keep coming back for four more weeks? I think God will honor that. I hope you have a fantastic week. I love you guys.